fundamentally, I don't think things are going to change that much because products and services still are going to be used to uh, solve business problems and bring productivity to places where it wasn't so productive. Welcome to the Look Left at Marketing podcast. I'm your host, John Moran, alongside Brian Scanlon, founder of Look Left Marketing. Sam Whitmore started Media Survey back in 1998, and in the ensuing 22 years, it has become one of the most trusted resources for PR professionals who are eager to deliver exceptional coverage for their clients. Sam's tech media research and analysis is first rate, whether it's highlighting trends, pitching opportunities, tracking reporter moves, or even if it's breaking tech media news, you can find it on Sam's Twitter feed. So he's got all the bases covered, and we're thrilled to have him with us here today. Uh, Sam, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about Media Survey. Well, gee, John, thank you. Um, basically, I, I read for a living, and I study what works, what gets greenlighted in tech media and business media, interview editors about why they did what they did, what they're going to do, and then package that up on a website and, as you say, the, the Twitter feed. And uh, it's gratifying because it's really a two-way street. The subscribers teach me as much as I teach them, and it's it's worked for an awfully long time, which I'm grateful for. Sam, I really enjoy uh, Media Survey. I've been reading it, it seems like, forever. And um, so I'm, I want to start by asking you, obviously, a lot of publications are covering, covering covid 19 related stories, but what else are B2B reporters and content gatekeepers looking for? And is there anything else? Well, yeah, there's verticals and there's IT pubs. So I, I sort of hesitate to make too blanket of a statement really about anything. But overall, this is service journalism, Brian, right? I mean, the people who read Restaurant Week or, or um, Info World or whatever it may be, they work in a fairly limited environment where there are specific problems to solve. And it's hard to get information about the products that, that you can buy and the services that you can license and what your peers are facing. And so the journalists in trade publications really do want the same kinds of stories pitched to them as before. It, it, it surprised me, but I did a lot of interviewing of these people. There was one guy, Brian Thibodeau, or Pat Thibodeau, I should say, at, at Tech Target, who said, man, writing a product story is sort of a, sort of a release for me. It's, it's something that I, I really sort of look forward to doing. And uh, those are his instructions, too, from his superiors to get out there and serve people the way you always serve them. So that was, again, a surprise to me, but I was sort of glad to hear it, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly finding that folks are open to uh, pitching, but clearly I think you have to do it a bit differently than the sort of standard way we went about it. Is, is there any sense of some do's and don'ts and maybe what some reporters have, have told you? Yeah, there's um, a gatekeeper, uh, Mo Marshall, VentureBeat, uh, and... Um, one of the TechCrunch reporters who asked not to be named, um, they both sort of said the same thing, which is, yeah, we still want the kinds of material we always got. We're trying to serve readers with very specific needs. But you do have to build the COVID context into it. You can't operate completely in a vacuum. So, for example, if you're if you're uh, developing, if you're in like the DevOps world or something, where you have coding projects going on. Well, uh, everybody is work from home and, and is there uh, 
a challenge with coordinating uh, revisions and is GitHub really going to do what it needs to do? And uh, so the, there are COVID specific contexts that I think you have to bake in. But again, I think that the, um, the COVID dimension is less than you might think. Now I'm talking specifically about the B2B pubs, but um, I, I think, I wouldn't say PR people are overthinking the COVID dimension. They, they should definitely contemplate it, but it, it has less of an impact for the, uh, the really down and dirty uh, B2B editors than uh, I might have thought. You know, one of the things that uh, I've enjoyed reading uh, during this time are the daily newspapers. Uh, they've done such a good job with the digital content. And I'm thinking like the Wall Street Journal, you know, which, uh, you know, is basically you know perceived as a banker's paper. Right. And and really for for business and Wall Street, but their their consumer coverage, particularly like product reviews and, and consumer questions that really affect all users now has been really just just terrific you know a, a review of a, you know how do you reboot reboot or get better performance on out of your wireless router um and doing it with kind of uh i don't want to say lighthearted because the times are certainly not lighthearted but at least with a, a human voice and angle and and some of the stuff is actually quite funny and and it's all done as you as you as you mentioned in that covid context because there's you know, millions of people working from home right now struggling with their routers or trying to figure out how to get better or faster internet connections. And I, I just think a lot of these publications are kind of rising to the challenge with that kind of right lens and context that you talk about. Some of the B2B publications, Brian, have uh, looked to specific communities of experts. I'll give you an example, like in ZDNet, uh, there was an article that said, so you're working from home, you better unplug Alexa, say lawyers. And uh, ZDNet uh, interviewed the law community saying Amazon admits that it's listening. And if you're talking about confidential business uh, by the letter of your agreement, you need to unplug that thing. So that's a COVID context thing, but it's not but, but it, it, it comes from a particular community of expertise. So if I was in PR, I would think about, okay, well, who, ha who has some real sort of vertical and, and very uh, focused expertise on a particular issue? And what is the COVID perspective coming from that community? And, and there's good editorial to be had there because they bring specific expertise. How is the opportunity for contributed content? We're talking about uh, experts, and we know that one of the ways that experts uh, uh, get out there and spend their time is by doing bylined articles or, or contributed videos. Uh, do, do you think that that's uh, the demand for contributed content's gone up, or is it the same, or... Uh, is it following this sort of COVID context uh, pattern? I've interviewed about a dozen gatekeepers over email, asked them that very question. And almost without exception, they said things haven't really changed all that much in terms of, you know, we still want people to uh, bust a myth or uh, think counterintuitively about something. Um, that continues. They do... Uh, 
One thing, you know, really surprised me is that a lot of them said rather than soliciting new manuscripts and trying to build new relationships with uh, contributors they haven't seen before, they, they go back to the people that they've already worked with because they know that the copy is clean. They have access to the analytics, so they know uh, what the search and social amplification profile was of the work that they've done. So um, more than one gatekeeper has said, I'm just simply not reviewing the new manuscript so much. I'm going back to the people that I know are good performers and saying, hey, what can I get out of you? Uh, so I thought that was interesting. There's some comfort in going to who and what you know, and particularly in, in, in harder times. It just uh, it allows you, I think, just to, to get the job done. I saw a piece in Silicon Angle from a security vendor, and it seemed like some cliche thing that you could have seen at any other time. And it was like in the era of COVID, it's, you know, you can get a leg up on your security footprint and here's what you want to do. Um, and I thought, how the hell did they land that? It seemed like a, almost a trite thing. Uh, but then I went down and looked at the bio. It turned out that the the contributor basically founded Shin Bet. You know what I mean? It was it was uh, somebody that that had like major credentials in the Israeli Security Committee, uh, not committee, but the society, I should say. So um, I thought, okay, well, then maybe uh, it's time to really look at like if you're in PR to not just look at the credentials of the man or woman who might click the keys and write the piece, but who do they know? Uh, in what fraternity or sorority or, or you know, why Combinator class did they come from and what is their pedigree? Because I think a lot of the uh, gatekeepers are looking for probably a higher level of expertise from a contributor than maybe they would have accepted before. Sam, you keep using the word gatekeeper. Explain that. A gatekeeper is an editor that's paid either by contract or on staff to uh, collect all of the unsolicited manuscripts and sort of review them to see which, uh, which, which of them would qualify to be published in a publication. That's, that's a great, I'm glad you asked me that, John. Uh, because it's sort of lingo, right? But it, basically, it's the person who can say yes or no to getting your piece published. And these people are dealing, obviously, not just with staff, but there's so many freelancers. We've talked about contributed content, maybe coming in from vendors, analysts, other outside experts. But the reliance on freelancers from the New York Times all the way down to local outlets, it's probably more than it's ever been. Yes, I think in part because after all the years of layoffs, there's some super talented people that just decided, you know, this work from home thing isn't so bad. And um, I've got some relationships out on the business. So yeah, there are more freelancers than ever before. And uh, that's a good point. I think that I think that uh, I think a lot of agencies underestimate uh, the freelance community collectively. And uh, I think that's something they shouldn't do, particularly now. In working with a freelancer, pitching a freelancer or a contributed writer for those of us on the PR side of things can be a different experience than pitching somebody who's on staff who may already have an assignment. Oftentimes, the contributed writer is you know, off on a story hoping that they can sell it somewhere, but they don't always have the deal made. It's funny you say about the, the selling part. Like Mike Bizard is a legendary IT freelancer. A lot of people in the business know him pretty well. And he said, what's the one thing that a PR person should remember when they pitch me? And and I didn't 
know the answer. And he said, I'm a businessman. I sell things for a living. You know, people think of me as a writer, but I'm but I sell things. So pitch me something that I can I can write for more than one publication because if I can turn the angle 30%, I might be able to sell it to a second publication or maybe a third publication. And that's efficient for me because he looks at his work like how profitable am I by the hour? So um, to extend that point as a business person, he would rather write, in some cases, a story that's maybe B plus, uh, but he can do it in an hour rather than an A or A plus story that might take him four hours. Just not profitable for him to do the A plus story because uh, he's trying to earn a living. We'd like to get both of you to talk about this. Uh, Brian, you from the agency side, having been in it for 25 or more years, and you, Sam, covering the space for more than 20 years. But the piece that Mitch Wagner did, Sam, that was on your site, and it was all about PR people having to pitch these deep tech topics. And anybody who's ever been on the PR side of things, agency or in-house's experiences, you're pitching stuff. In some cases, if it's deep technology, you really don't understand it all that well. We've all been there. How about some suggestions on how you simplify the story, how you get a handle on it, how you feel a little bit confident when you get on the phone or send out an email pitch to a reporter. The thing that I remember most about that story from Mitch was I was sort of girding for pushback from our readers because the quintessence of that story was if you don't understand something, just put the time in and read more and ask around until you, until you command it. You know, and, and but I, I think that was sort of a simplistic view from a reporter who doesn't understand the nuances of if I'm an AE and I have maybe four accounts or if I'm, I'm on like four or five accounts in some of the bigger agencies, you know, that's a tall order unless you want the AE to work nights and weekends to put that time in. And, and some do. Uh, so that was the one of the things that that. But I think it's emblematic of journalism in general that journalists don't care about PR's problems. No, they're, the PR people are the ones that are knocking on the door. So the journalist sort of by definition doesn't have to have a lot of empathy for how many accounts they might be on or how complex the topic is. If they're knocking on the journalist's door, there's sort of a... Uh, an understandable expectation on the part of the journalist that they know what they're talking about. And if they don't, they just need to get on what is or um, email the client and say, can you give me 10 minutes with the CTO's admin or something until you get it? And you don't have to get it the way a CTO gets it, but you have to at least be able to get to the second level down of how, if it's Kubernetes or whatever might be over someone's head, you just have to raise your game. And, th and that's what Mitch was saying. It's funny. When I uh, started in, in tech PR, I remember my first client was in help desk uh, software. And I would call a journalist and uh, pitch them. And they would ask me a question. And I would always say, I don't know, but I'll get right back to you. And I would hang up the phone and I would go find the answer. And I'd call them back and, and be like, okay, I have the answer. And they would ask me another question. And I'd be like, I don't know, but I'll get right back to you. And I think over time, you you get to to learn it. I think that those we don't necessarily have the luxury of that kind of time of being able to call a reporter multiple times and, and go back and forth. I think it was a different era. So I think now my I always look at, you know, we're we're an infrastructure technology 
uh, firm. It's all we do. It's the it's the super hard stuff that runs underneath the covers that nobody ever sees, but it makes things faster, better, cheaper, safer. And I always just ask, what's the problem that it's solving? And if the problem turns out to be this incredibly technical answer about a certain amount of bits and bytes versus this bits and bytes, that's probably not a story uh, because that's just, you know, that's just not, you've got to then somehow be able to translate that. And that's not going to necessarily get clicked on um, in terms of it. So I always ask what, why does it matter? What's the problem it solves? And, and then usually if I can wrap my head around the problem, then everything else kind of unfolds from there. Brian, that's like spot on because uh, Mitch did some interviewing of journalists for our piece. And uh, that was, I think that was uh, Stephen, Stephen J. Von Nichols's response, <clears throat> which is, what is the reason you'd want to write the story in the first place, which is what is the reader benefit? What is the ROI for the reader to have read the story and then maybe purchase the product and get the value from it? So, And that's generally much less technical than the ones and zeros of it. Yeah, and the only thing I was going to say there, Sam, sort of tying in with what Nichols said, that Von Nichols said, the at least especially when you'd have younger people join in an agency and they weren't really all that steeped in the technology and they'd be intimidated by it, was just helping them understand things from the point of view of the reporter. What does the reporter need to write his or her story? You know, what's the business problem and how is it being impacted, potentially solved by whatever it is that you're pitching for your client? You need to understand it at that level and be able to help the reporter write their story. You don't necessarily need to be a software developer or an engineer or a data scientist. We're not gonna be that. So there's no sense pretending it. But if you know enough about it, what's the story in fairly high level terms and how can you present that to the reporter so they can almost immediately imagine, oh yeah, that's what it would look like in print for my readers. I've got it, let's do it. Uh, I always thought that was a good place to start out with, especially the younger folks who are just joining. I also think that you, if you're going to be in this business and you're going to work with journalists, you need to read. And it, it's not, you can't carve out hours and hours and hours a day. But, you know, I've always recommended to to new people coming in is to, I would recommend an outlet to them I, based on the, the client. So maybe they're, maybe they're deep in the coding and Kubernetes. I would say, I want you to, you know, subscribe to the new stack, get it into your inbox. I want you to start reading that. And you won't understand everything out of the gate and be able to ask questions about it and see patterns. And, you know, I think we all have our go-to reading every morning or, you know, while we're eating our sandwich or whatever. Um, and I think that that really applies because I, I find it super ironic that, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to help journalists. And yet I think people say, oh, I don't have a lot of time to read. It, there's just a huge disconnect right there. Um, and, and I think you have to make the time, you got to block out the schedule, figure out your routine. And, you know, when you go back to commuting, spend your commute in reading and spend your commute home podcasting or playing video games or decompressing. And I, I think you really have to, you have to do that because you do need a base level understanding of not only the technical and business issues, but also the publications and, and who's writing and what the headlines look like. Cause you know, Sam, you do this for a living. There are clear patterns there and opportunities that emerge every day. I really have to be careful because I can lapse into preaching as real easy, just just as a personal trait. 
So it's easy for me to say, like what Mitch said, well, read more. But I've always been sensitive to like when I first got Media Survey going and I started to understand the dynamics of how PR agencies work and you know, you have people on multiple accounts and then or the, the, the you lose the account and all the time you invested in learning about technology X is out the window because, you, you know, now there's a new account. You got to learn that one. So, you know, I I feel like, you know, people work hard enough in PR so that their nights and weekends, you know, when you finally get to that second glass of wine and you want to binge on something, you know, you, you have the right to do that. But the fact is that if people have chosen this particular profession, there's a little bit of overhead that comes with it. And that is, like you say, a little bit, a little bit of, uh, of uh, calisthenics, I guess, you know, just the, the discipline of exposing yourself to something other than scanning a tweet. You know, that's not going to make you smart. You have to go deep instead of wide. And that there's just simply no substitute for it. You know, one of the things we talk about at our agency is what is your superpower? And, uh, you know, this is coming from a comic book nerd, obviously, with a garage filled with uh, comic books and and which I just view as another form of storytelling. Um, And, you know, I think focus is a good thing. And uh, and being able to say, I, you know, I may be on four accounts or this, but I'm going to really try and focus and 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 get really good at this one thing or this one area and hopefully it's something that interests you and i think that allows allows people at least i've seen people's careers really bloom when they they kind of focused in that direction because i think you know been in agencies for 25 years left up to the agencies you're going to be placed where where it's best usually for the agency um, and I think you can choose your own path by saying, well, I'm going to get really good at something and, and I'm going to focus. I think we're so filled with distractions and, you know, the, the busier you are and the, the more people in your tweet feed. And there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, but, you know, this ability to say, I'm going to spend a year or six months really getting good at, at a couple of things, I, I think is, is important for even people who've been in it 25 years. Before we move on to other subject, I want to just add one last thing. It was uh, an agency that uh, subscribes to media surveys, still does, but back in the day, they wanted to build expertise in a technology sector that they really weren't known for. So the what, what they decided to do was, uh, they, they codenamed it Deep Love, Operation Deep Love, and they they focused on a very small number of reporters and influencers in this sector. And instead of going wide and trying to build 25 different relationships, they just chose to build five. But they went down to bedrock on those five. They knew what those people had for breakfast. They knew what they read for pleasure. They knew where they lived. They, and, and, but most of all, they studied not only what they wrote, but how they wrote it and whom they quoted. And they, for every every pitch that they sent these individuals, they sent three or four, uh, in case you missed it, emails. Hey, here's a link to that study in Romania that came out you might have missed or something. And just, just gave them service without asking anything in return. And within a couple of years, that agency was among the leaders in that space. So that's another way to boil it. 
is instead of uh, studying uh, white papers or maybe in addition to studying white papers and the technical stuff, let's pick three or four men and women who are going to be around in a couple of years on that particular beat and just learn how to serve them. You know, you mentioned, uh, in case you missed it, with a sort of data-driven story, you recently shared this really interesting item from Matthew Lindley um, about his thoughts on data-driven storytelling. I want to spend a couple of minutes on that and and talk about, you know, the demand for that with reporters and, and maybe where it's going right and where it's going wrong. What you're referring to is a former reporter, Matthew Lindley, who worked for VentureBeat and The Journal and TechCrunch and um, another one in there. And he is now a consultant in the world of using data to tell stories. And he primarily works on shaking loose the data itself. A lot of what he uh, sells is expertise, sort of political expertise among departments and and uh, legal and and being able to to get data in the first place and then be able to sort of query the data and interview the data is actually an expression that's used. Interview the data to figure out what kinds of stories are there in the first place. And then by that time, you're ready to go out and go to market and go pitch the stories to the the editors. Uh, the, The things that he really emphasizes in terms of what illuminates is to be able to uh, pull out the most counter, counterintuitive and salient statistic in, in any, any given body of data that might be predictive uh, of something that is going to unfold. Now, that's easier said than done, but uh, most of the people that I've interviewed over the years who like surveys and who like data uh, don't don't necessarily like data for its own sake. It's sort of boring fundamentally, but if it illuminates a path to uh, tomorrow's common knowledge, uh, then they're they're you know they're all for it. So that's that's really the gist of of everybody's efforts with respect to uh, data storytelling. So as we wrap up here, I'm just wondering, you know, if there's anything that any predictions you might have in terms of maybe where. What we're going to see on the other side of COVID nineteen, with with either publications or journalists, or uh, you know, maybe put that crystal ball out a little bit and and see, you know, explore what might happen. I think it's going to be more or less business as usual, uh, six to twelve months out. I think there will be more coverage of uh, you know, a couple of years ago it was like uh, the future of work. And, and it was sort of a interesting sort of subtopic in the mix. I think work and the workplace and everything to do with um, that is going to be probably 40 to 50% of what B2B uh, covers because you're, you're now understanding sort of retroactively just how important supply chains were and how important uh, people showing up for work is, and the the uh, the changes that uh, robots and automation are going to have. All that stuff is going to accelerate because the the dependence on human beings is, you, you just can't have that dependence on human beings like that that you had before because they get sick. So um, so I think one of the big changes 
or the amplifications of something that was already going on is this future of work thing is going to become much bigger of a deal. So HBR and Wharton, and there's been a lot of, a lot of publications and a lot of media brands that have really focused on productivity and workplace and HR and, and workforce and culture and all that stuff. That's going to just turbocharge. There's no, no doubt about it. So I don't think it would be turbocharging without COVID. But fundamentally, I don't think things are going to change that much because products and services still are going to be used to uh, solve business problems and bring productivity to places where it wasn't so productive. Um, as far as staffing goes, we talked about freelancing earlier. I think you guys were wise to bring that up. There'll be more uh, freelance uh, and, and freelance networks, I think, of you know, people that'll just decide, you know, I really like this work from home thing and I was laid off and I uh, have relationships. And so I think the, you know, the, the decisions of the world and, you know, the people that sell access to uh, media databases, they're going to have to get their act together and, and think more about uh, freelancers than they've ever done before. Well, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to catch up. Thank you, Brian. And thank you, John. I really appreciate uh, being one of the uh, low badge numbers here for the uh, Look Left podcast. Our thanks to Media Survey's Sam Whitmore for a lot of great information. If you want to stay up to speed on what's happening in the ever-changing world of tech media, check out Mediasurvey.com or Sam's Twitter feed, at Sam Whitmore. We hope you'll subscribe to the Look Left at Marketing podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And, of course, we welcome any comments you might have and suggestions for future episodes. Looking ahead to our next conversation, we'll be talking to Allison Schiff, Senior Editor at Ad Exchanger. Allison's been covering marketing and advertising for the past decade, and I'll suffice it to say there's no shortage of things to talk about when it comes to ad tech and martech in 2020. It's going to be fun, and I hope you'll be able to listen in. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Till next time, be well.